What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Martian Media Montage, where we talk Monkey Shines, Untouchables, Ted Lasso, Sega, Pico, and the Chico Stick. Yeah, not necessarily too much going on in the uh, world of me, but talking Monkey Shines, a classic blockbuster film that I saw in passing, and I was like, you know what? I got to watch this, talk about it. Untouchables, I want to say I've seen years ago, decided to relive a uh, classic watch with a VHS viewing. Uh, Ted Lasso, loved the show on Apple. Not even necessarily the biggest soccer fan, but it was just good writing. Sega Pico, that was definitely a trip down memory lane with a neighbor who had that. The Chico Stick, the uh, classic iconic candy, same thing. My old man used to buy me those all the time. And uh, just, you know, classic candy that I've enjoyed that I felt like needed to be uh, conveyed to you guys to listen to. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. (laughs) Um uh, recent pickups, I picked up a uh, cocktail, VHS, sealed, untouchables, the edge, and, uh, shoot, I picked up another one, uh, via VHS, um, dang, cocktail, the edge, untouchables, and I definitely paid $4 at this thrift store, and I picked up four VHSs, I am drawing a blank, I apologize, people, I should have wrote that down, uh, <laughs> so dumb clearly my mind's going where is my medication i'm 34 where's my wheelchair why is matlock not on right now <laughs> turn on dallas you know what after dallas let's watch <laughs> let's watch little house on the prairie damn it uh these are all such great shows anyway uh just <laughs> clearly losing my mind over telling you guys what I watched. I watched two movies. Well, actually, technically, I just watched another one, but I will talk about it on another episode. I didn't decide to add it into this. Two movies, TV show, classic educa- uh, edutainment console, and a, a classic candy. So there you have it. Episode 75. Let's go. What's up, guys? I'm going to be uh, talking Monkey Shines, 1988, rated R. I admit I uh, managed to find it a certain way, and I watched it that way. However, I definitely remember years and years ago going to Blockbuster before they went out of business and uh, just staring at the iconic cover, wondering what this uh, film was about. And uh, having seen Altered States first, it's, I guess, similar to the, I mean, sort of in a weird, obscure way, not with William Hurt, although I, I definitely enjoyed Altered States much more so than I enjoyed this film. I'm glad that I watched it nonetheless, but uh, I'm more or less here to sway you guys a certain way to pretty much stay away from it. But uh, I got Wolf Fat in the background, some uh, good old classic uh, desert rock, uh, stoner metal, whatever the hell you guys want to call it, psychedelic rock. It's just stuff I enjoy. Um, this film released 1988. It is an hour and 53 minutes. It's too long, in my opinion, for this drab, dull, misunderstood film by George A. Romero. Yes, the iconic 1969 uh, Night of the Living Dead uh, director. It has a 6.2 out of 12,000 reviews uh, on AMDB. To me, that's a little too high. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I need... <laughs> it's like this and then the film Kids that my buddy uh, Austin and I, we were talking about during their PS2 episode. It's, well, there's obviously other films, but these are the two that I instantly can think of that come to my mind instantaneously where I'm like, whoa... I not due to uh, the graphic nature of how kids was compared to this film, but it's just, I don't know. I I didn't understand this film. I didn't really care for it. I I probably won't ever watch it again. In other words, is what I'm trying to say. Sorry, Mr. Romero. I'm sure you were trying to uh, sway people one way or another, but I just didn't care for it. Uh, Interesting idea, but it fizzles out. 
the ever iconic cover art, as I stated with the uh, clapping monkey on it on the front. I used to see this at Blockbuster many, many times, passing by it, never rented it. Uh, and once there was uh, a man who was in prison, uh, well, excuse me, I don't, what the hell is wrong with me? <laughs> that is uh, essentially what it says on the cover art itself. I never noticed this before. Excuse me, I kind of got ahead of myself there before. But uh, so there's a little monkey, you know, the clapping monkey with uh, the symbols. And above his head, it states, once there was a man whose prison was a chair, the man had a monkey and they made the strangest pair. The monkey ruled the man and it climbed inside his head. And now as fate would have it, one of them is dead. Uh, I can see what they were trying to do here, but yeah, whatever. It says Monkey Shines, an experiment in fear is what the actual title is called. It's not strictly just Monkey Shines. Monkey Shines is written in white, and below that in smaller print is written in red. So therefore you think it's just some sort of tagline or a motto, slogan to sell it. But no, that's the title apparently according to Wikipedia. Uh, way too much for a movie poster in my opinion. Carver, cover heart is uh, incredibly cool. Uh, the Clapping Monkey, nonetheless, awesome. I still remember vividly walking by it and looking at it all the time. Still takes me back to a different time, nonetheless. Uh, labeled as a drama, horror, sci-fi. Uh, sure, but I'd use personally horror a little loosely. It's it's about a quadriplegic man who has trained a monkey to help uh, with his paralysis until the monkey begins to develop feelings of rage against its new master. Those with... Uh, Excuse me, those worth mentioning are Stanley Tucci and William Newman in this film. Otherwise, no notable actors that I can really recall that I'm like, oh my gosh, I gotta talk about these people. I, I haven't heard of any of the rest of them at all. Uh, now, a different tagline reads that, reads that a man uh, trapped within his own body and an animal trained to read and carry out thoughts. One with a mind for revenge. Uh, sure, whatever. Uh, the other... With an instinct for carrying out that revenge. So dumb. It just... Uh, it's almost like they just phoned it in. They phoned in, like, all of the information in regards to this movie, I feel like. I don't know. Hear me out. I'm going to get into it, read a little more uh, information about it to you guys. Uh, Tribuli, this is George uh, A. Romero's first studio film. The studio, however, uh, was working with Orion Pictures and it had recut the film against Romero's wishes, which contributed to the box office failure of the film overall. Afterwards, Romero went back to uh, independent filming until Dark Half in 1993, a few years later, also from Orion Pictures. One of the very few uh, films uh, depicting a quadriplegic sex scene with one dark image of one of the girl's uh, right breasts that you see. Very, very, like, it's like, bam, if you didn't, if you didn't see it, you missed it. I am not listening to a commercial. I will... Come on. Well, I guess I'll just move on. Uh, producer Charles Evans said that the oral scene between Kate uh, McNeil and Jason Beige, Beige, however you pronounce his name, I'm going to say Beige, spelled differently than the normal Beige, how we spell it, but sure, was much more explicitly shot. Uh, there was a raw sex scene between the two, and George toned it down. He didn't view it as such that it needed to be in the film, and Evans uh, later said that he was right for doing so. So, that's pretty cool. Uh, lastly, George changed the ending of uh, the film with the insistence of Orion Pictures, his film's distributor. Romero's original ending was much more, uh, excuse me, much less optimistic, implying the evil forces were still at work. He stated that I thought my ending played well, but I admit that the testing results were overwhelmingly in favor of the uh, current version. 
Uh, to Orion's credit, they said that it's up to you, Mr. Romero. We'll release it either way. So I went along with it, coming from Romero. Obviously, I'm speaking vicariously through him. So I went along with it, not to fight it, but I'll always miss uh, the original ending that I came up with. Pretty interesting. Released uh, July 29th, 1988. Coming up on 35 years ago, a month uh, from now, it'll be uh, 35 years ago as of this recording. Also known as Ella, uh, the name of the monkey, uh, is the title of the film is what it's also known as. Interesting enough, you know, it's a male monkey and his name's Boo, but they call him Ella because most uh, movies with uh, depictions of monkeys are typically female because they're a little easier to uh, maintain from what I was reading compared to uh, uh, male monkeys on set. <clears throat> the budget was $7 million and it grossed 5.3 mil, so therefore it flopped. Uh, according to Wiki, it is known as... Uh, the title, but as I stated earlier, add the experiment in fear with the tiny little red lettering, uh, whatever, uh, based on the 83 novel by Michael Stewart. Orion and producer Charles Evans acquired the rights in 1985, and it was uh, the setting was actually originally set to Oxford, England, when the novel was actually based in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, which they then opted to film in uh, Pittsburgh as well. Uh, Tony Williams is the film's scholar's analysis uh, this time around. Uh, I, I like to look at uh, different um, reviewers and see what they have to say about it. Uh, it is that of a complex film dealing with ambiguity, nature of human motivations, and the inability, or excuse, yes, the inability to deal with consequences of their own desires. At the time, the other um, option for the film, or excuse me, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. So that's, he's rather correct that there are human human motivations and desires that kind of get uh, hindered by our own ethics that are you know created within our psyche. But he decides to as Alan, the main uh, protagonist, essentially decides to utilize the uh, monkey on his own behalf and saying, "Well, it's not me; it's it's her." And I see where he's coming from, and I see exactly what uh, Tony Williams is trying to convey here. Pretty cool. It sounds better on paper than actually viewing the film. So I guess that's why I also like to review these things because I'm like, oh, let me see what they have to say. I'm like, oh, it sounds much better than the actual film itself. And that's kind of what <laughs> happens almost every time. <laughs> At the time, the other uh, option was another uh, Stewart novel rather than uh, Monkey Shines known as Far Cry. I don't think it's any symbolism to the game. I doubt it's completely related. And if I'm wrong, that would be interesting because... Far Cry was a pretty fun game. I remember playing it on the original Xbox back in the day. Uh, the interior of the house was actually uh, constructed by set designer Cletus Anderson, who collaborated for a long time with Mr. Romero to uh, include uh, creep show sets that they worked on together. Uh, the shooting at times consisted of 12-hour days. That's crazy. Well, I mean, try doing flight ops for, you know, two, three days straight. You know, have fun, have fun with that and tell me how you feel. Anyway, for filming The Monkey Boo, portrayed as Ella required many doubles. Four puppets created by legendary uh, practical effects artist Tom Savini made with yak fur, which was controlled by remote in some uh, situations. Romero's uh, ending was actually much more true to the source material, aka the novel, in which Alan doesn't recover from his accident and becoming a quadriplegic. After poor reviews, the studio recut the film without George's knowledge to add a shock ending instead. That kind of blows. Uh, another issue was the film's length. Upset with the way that it was handled, Romero returned to independent films up until, obviously, 93 when he came out with his other film. But hey, you know, more power to him, man. The alternate ending was unreleased until 2014. It took a long time. It is included in the Blu-ray uh, Blu release in the uh, extras. Uh, 
and then the released uh, DVD came out September 28th, 1999, and then Blu-ray, as I just mentioned, 2014, and then it became out of print by 2020. So coming up on 10 minutes, and I had a lot more to say about this film than I actually anticipated. Um, researching it and reading about it was much more interesting personally than viewing it, but I mean, by all means, to each their own. If you want to watch something like that, it was just kind of hard to... Uh, Except the belief that I'm like, okay, there's this killer monkey trying to kill people and the monkey's like less than a foot tall. I mean, it's more or less the uh, concept of the man being able to control the monkey through this like uh, serum, I guess, if you will. But uh, anyway, it, it was okay. For those of you that are completionists, watch it. Otherwise, I would just say ignore it. You're not missing much. All right, next thing. What's going on, everybody? Still listening to Woe Fat, the Singularity album that came out in 2022. The song is called Overworlder. It's the middle of the album, I believe. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to be talking to you guys about The Untouchables, uh, a VHS that I picked up at a thrift store down the street from me for a dollar a little while ago. I want to say I saw it in my younger years as an adolescent in my youth. And uh, <laughs> perhaps when I had uh, Netflix in its infancy days, I might have watched it there. I don't think I ever owned it. And I was like, you know what, dude, for a dollar, I'm going to get it on VHS, plug in the old VCR. I love that sound, the way that it hums. And sure, the picture's not necessarily the best, but it's still visual. And it just, I had a great time with this film. I'm glad that I watched it. Music was done by uh, Ennio Morricone and directed by Brian uh, De Palma. Oh, man. It's uh, loosely based on the book by uh, the same name, actually, in 1957, uh, which was based on real-life events uh, as the plot was actually technically fictionalized, uh, starring a star-studded cast uh, featuring uh, Elliot Ness, um, who is Kevin Costner's character, Charles Martin Smith, Sean Connery, Andy Garcia, and Robert De Niro as Al Capone. It is the third collaboration with uh, De Palma and De Niro, first being 1968's uh, greetings in 1970s uh, Hi Mom. The score was done, as I just stated, by Ennio Morricone, and music by uh, Duke Ellington also is in this film as well. Morricone is much more known for his uh, spaghetti western uh, scores with Sergio Leone, the um, you know man with no name uh, Clint Eastwood films, which God, I love just how that music sounds. It's beautiful. This movie premiered June 2nd, 1987, grossed 106 million dollars worldwide. Uh, Connery won Best Supporting Actor for this film. I will get more into that momentarily. Originally, uh, this film was sought to be becoming an ABC TV series, but Universal executives uh, Ned Toonin sought a uh, much more serious, authentic depiction for the uh, silver screen in Chicago. Uh, Brian De Palma, being a, a writer as well, doesn't take credit for things that he doesn't do. Uh, like the script, for example, written by uh, David Mamet, or Mamet, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, excuse me. He didn't take credit for it since he didn't write it. Uh, it's a uh, great discipline for the directors uh, that he states for all directors everywhere, which is pretty cool. I, I like that. Uh, De Palma wanted Don Johnson, but crazy enough, listen to this. Uh, Mickey Rourke, Jeff Bridges, Harrison Ford, William Hurt, Michael Douglas, and Jack Nicholson were all offered the role for Elliot Ness but turned it down and it went to Kevin Costner. That's that's crazy. That's like a whole nother movie right there with all those people. That's fucking, that's crazy. Uh, Costner got into the role meeting with uh, former FBI agent Al Wolf for historical context on uh, the mannerisms that were utilized by his character at the time. De Niro was uh, De Palma's first choice, but at the uh, time, also uh, due to his uncertain availability, 
due to his appearances on uh, Broadway, um, the play being uh, Cuba and his teddy bear, he opted for uh, other individuals as well. De Niro tried to gain 30 pounds for his role, uh, but De Palma met with also Bob Hoskins in the event that De Niro couldn't do it due to his um, availability with uh, the Broadway plays that he was working on. Gene Hackman and uh, Marlon Brando were also considered for the role of Al Capone, which is pretty crazy. Uh, De Niro watched uh, historical footage of Al Capone get into character and even had Al Capone's tailors make identical suits for him to uh, wear. Robert was also given $1.5 million for his role in this film. It's pretty damn crazy. Principal photography started August 18, 1986 in Chicago. Filming of the bridge sequence uh, took 10 days in total to film where they uh, do like the drug raid between uh, Canada and I think it's like Montana or something. Pretty cool. Um, the railway station shootout is an homage or homage, however you want to pronounce it, excuse me, to Odessa Steps, a 1925 silent film, Battleship Potemkin. Parodied also this particular sequence in 1994's Naked Gun 33 and a third, The Final Insult. Uh, of the Naked Gun trilogy, I still think one and two are my favorite. The third one, it's cool. It's, it's not bad by any means. I just, I tend to render a lot more of my knowledge and humor with uh, the first two installments of that franchise. Uh, 82% in Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 7.6 out of 10. So thankfully there, I agree with them in that regard. Roger Ebert also praised the film for its action sequences and locations, but disapproved of the script in Brian De Palma's direction. I disagree with that regard. I mean, I, I mean, the scripture, I mean, you know, like just like how once upon a time in Hollywood with Quentin Tarantino, like he took it to a different level. It wasn't entirely just all factual. He just wanted to have fun with it. And it, it almost sounds like that's what Brian De Palma did. And the critic that Mr. Ebert is, he didn't agree with it. But at the end of the day, it's Hollywood. He was just having fun with it. Not everything has to be factual all the time. If, if that's how he perceived it, at least that's just, I'm speaking on behalf uh, for Brian De Palma, of course. Uh, there was also a 1989 NES, Nintendo Entertainment System game, made by the British company Ocean. Loose, uh, on average, on pricecharting.com, according to this uh, reading and uh, listening, viewing, however you want to, <laughs> I guess, view this as, <laughs> $32 loose, complete in-box $80, or new $500. There is a variant, however. Now, with the blue label variant, it is $60 loose, Complete in box, $237, or new, damn near grand, $950. It's crazy. I've definitely seen this game in passing plenty of times, and now I almost feel like whether I want to play it or flip it, shit, I should probably just pick it up, <laughs> regardless if it's for the right price. There was also a canceled prequel film, 2004, The Untouchables, Mother's Day, focusing on a, uh, Capone's rise before encountering Elliot Ness uh, as a lawmaker. According to De Palma, it was in development with Nicolas Cage, Gerard Butler, and Benicio Del Toro to play Capone in different stages of his life. Pretty crazy. That's also a lot more information on this film than I anticipated. I'm glad that I'm finding all this about this film, but otherwise, nonetheless, I was glued to my seat. It was just so action-packed. I loved it, man. It was fucking... It was a great movie. Untouchables on IMDb has a 7.8 out of 319,000 reviews. Well-deserved. Uh, I also noticed via the cast that Billy Drago plays the guy in uh, white who was the uh, assassin uh, that was in the courtroom initially and who also uh, kills Sean Connery's character. Spoiler for those of you who haven't seen it. Uh, whom he, as an actor, is known for his role in uh, the Hills Have Eyes uh, remake in 2006, 2004, uh, one of those years. 
Uh, the tagline here for this film is that the Chicago dream is that big. I don't agree with this. Um, I came up with this kind of on the spot. <laughs> um, how about Ness is about to screw Chicago's pooch. Who's in charge of the city's hooch? Yes, it's corny, but I think that sounds much more fluid than uh, Chicago's a big dream. Have fun with it kind of deal. Like, it's just, I mean, for such a, not necessarily a dark, but like an action-packed movie, it just deserves a better tagline than what I read. I think what I had to say, Ness is about to screw Chicago's pooch. Who's in charge of the city's hooch? Come on, man. Much better. I'm going to call it Brian De Palma, see if he can get a new tagline added. I'll take my 1.5 mil just like Robert De Niro did, please. Thanks. And I'll take it all in pennies. You know what? Pay me a Monopoly money. I'll take it. Please don't pay me Monopoly money. Anyway, <laughs> trivially in the film, an envelope is dropped on Elliot's desk, uh, and it's assumed that it's to be a bribe in an amount that was never revealed. In all actuality, Al Capone promised Elliot Ness $2,000 on his desk every Monday for turning a blind eye to the bootlegging, bootlegging excuse me, which equivocates to $30,000 today, relatively. Uh, Ness refused and later struggled with money, and he died at 54 years nearly broke. He also became a heavy drinker after the fact, because at the end, uh, there's a news reporter who's like, what are you going to do now? And he's like, I think I'll have a drink. He was sober until then and then became a heavy drinker and went broke and unfortunately passed. It's crazy how that works. Excuse me. Al Capone in real life knew that killing a prohibition agent would only lead to more trouble. So he had a nonviolent order concerning the untouchables, meanwhile attempting to buy them off repeatedly. He personally never attempted any murder on Ness or any of his men, period. Pretty crazy. Despite the final courtroom scene between Ness and Al Capone, they never actually met face-to-face -face in all actuality or reality. Uh, the baby in the carriage in the train station sequence where the uh, baby carriage falls down the uh, stairs was actually the stunt coordinator's son. And why wouldn't it be? You know, because he obviously knew what he was doing, right? Uh, Robert De Niro actually couldn't gain weight for the film, despite wanting to, to uh, look more authentic to uh, Al Capone with his uh, method acting skills. He wore pads and pillows for that particular effect instead. Uh, lastly, this is pretty interesting. I did not know this. Uh, this is Sean Connery's only Oscar nomination and win throughout his entire acting career. That's incredible. Released June 3rd, 1987 on a budget of $25 million and grossed $76 million worldwide. Well-deserved because it's just a phenomenal gangster action flick. Like I said, I'm pretty sure I've probably seen it years ago along the lines of like when I've seen The Craze or... You know, insert action gangster film here from like the noir type era, whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm glad that I watched it. I'm glad that I have a VHS copy for a dollar. Well worth my time and well worth my money. I mean, a dollar. Come on, you can't complain. And that solid rewind sound, you know, come on. You can't beat that. So there you have it. All right, Untouchables. Watch it any which way you can. Great, great movie. All right, next thing. going on guys i'm gonna be talking to you guys about the apple tv uh direct exclusive uh not saga excuse me trilogy of a season i guess if you will uh ted lasso a 2020 tv series strictly streamed on apple tv plus or whatever the hell you want to call it nowadays it has an 8.8 .8 out of 275,000 reviews and rightly so because <clears throat> of its great cast of actors and excellent writing uh I'm not even necessarily a 
a soccer or a football fan enthusiast personally. I mean, but due to this show, I almost feel like I am now. <laughs> it's about American college football coached uh, by Ted Lasso and who heads a uh, London or excuse me, who heads to London to manage uh, AFC Richmond, a struggling English Premier League football team. And uh, I, I honestly, I don't know. I, I think I, I heard good ratings and good, you know, rants and raves about this show. And I was like, you know what? Sure, I'll give it a try because I like Jason Sudeikis and I thought he was funny. And then I, it turns out that he was a writer along with Brett Goldstein who uh, sent a, a videotape to be Roy Kent in the show. I'm going to go over a little bit of the show, but it's more or less kind of like the behind the scenes like I usually do for you guys. I try not to give too much uh, spoilers away, but it's honestly, it's it's a really good show. The first two seasons are the best. It's a very short-lived show. It's only like 34 seasons uh, currently uh, spanning over, uh, excuse me, 34 episodes spanning over uh, three seasons is what I was trying to say. Starring Jason Sudeikis as Ted Lasso, known for uh, Hall Pass and as well as uh, Where the Millers. Personally, that those are the two that I... Decided to mention that I feel like he's probably uh, best well uh, known for currently. Uh, pretty much everyone else is up and coming British actors, not hating by any means, just not as well known as Jason, in my opinion. Spending the course of 34 episodes within three years, three seasons, uh, rather short lived, but enjoyable nonetheless. The tagline is uh, for Ted Lasso is he's out of his league. Well played. Current, yeah, it's. Totally, totally agree and concur with that. Uh, Trivially, Brett Goldstein, uh, who plays Roy Kent, was actually hired as a writer, and he got attached to Roy's character, and he sent an audition tape to Bill Lawrence as a writer and actually um, won the role to play as Roy Kent. So that's pretty cool. I wonder if that's how he is in person. Like, I mean, his acting in the show is just funny. Like, oi, the way that he talks, and he's very raspy, and just, um, it cracks me up too, like the way that he says, Kaylee, and like, just, Fuck. I don't know, just kind of you had to have been there, I guess, kind of thing or watch the show, just the way that he kind of, you know, carries himself. You know, it's very like English version of like Clint Eastwood or something. <laughs> At least that's how I viewed it. Jason Sudeikis that, uh, said in his own uh, situation, it personally paralleled with the fictional character Ted and that his uh, he was actually going through a bad breakup with Olivia Wilde, actress from a Tron uh, uprising uh, when the show picked up. So Jason went to England in order to grieve and move on just like his character. So his character in the show actually is a American football coach who moves to England and essentially uh, grieves and moves on from his actual marriage in the uh, TV series. And he has a son, Henry, and uh, his wife begins to fall for uh, Dr. Jacob. And it's just, like I said, I don't want to give too much away, but it's uh, the parallels are rather interesting. I never even really put two and two together. So that's really uh, interesting. Uh, according to Hannah Waddington, who plays uh, Rebecca, uh, AFC Richmond's, I guess, manager, if you will, and then obviously uh, the boss of uh, Ted Lasso, Jason Sudeikis' character, uh, she receives biscuits borderline pretty much daily in episodes from Ted Lasso, and hear me out. The biscuits that Lasso's, uh, Lasso's excuse me, character brings um, his boss, Rebecca, daily were actually terrible. The prop department admits that it wasn't much effort put into them whatsoever, not knowing that she'd eat them with such enthusiasm. Uh, she even jokes uh, as of late, saying that it's the greatest acting she, she, she's ever done, making them seem tasty. That's actually pretty funny because, I mean, yeah, clearly she's a great actress because 
you know, I <laughs> I watched the show and I'm like, man, where does she get those biscuits? I know Ted makes them, you know, quote unquote, apparently. And I'm like, she plays a good job at making them look good. I mean, they look like wafers or something of some sort. Anyway, um, uh, trivially, there's also a scene where a, uh, a hunt to find Ted's Rebecca's uh, biscuits was actually filmed, but deleted from season one in uh, 2020. Um, I guess rightly so, because I, I feel like it, that just that would have just been a dumb subplot filler episode for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. It's really not necessary. So it's probably better they cut it out anyway. Uh, jousting tournaments, trivially, were also Lee. Uh, that's not even fucking English. Also Lee. Yeah, nice. Five minutes, 15 seconds. Can't fucking speak English. Uh, jousting tournaments were also held on uh, the Richmond Green in the medieval era before obviously turning into a soccer arena. So that's pretty cool. Or football, however you want to call it. Excuse me. According to Wikipedia, the first season premiered on Apple TV August 14th, 2020. Season 2, July 23rd, 2021. And then March 15th, as of this year, 2023, for its uh, apparent final season of uh, season 3. Ted Lasso production-wise, Jason Sudeikis originally portrayed the character in 2013 as a part of TV commercials for NBC Sports promoting the coverage of the Premier League. In 2015, his girlfriend at the time, Olivia Wilde, suggested that he revisit the character, whereas the original was much more of a belligerent, kind of over-the-top uh, comic individual. And in the show that is portrayed now with the, amongst these uh, three seasons, he's much more sympathetic and a uh, down-to-earth, kind of like a philosophical character with little quirky jokes here and there, of course. Uh, writers uh, Brett Goldstein, Roy uh, Kent's character, uh, and uh, Jason Sudeikis were both writing from the start of the series. And as far as merchandise is concerned, uh, March 2021 uh, sold ahead of time for season two's premiere. Uh, they sold uh, football jerseys. So that's pretty cool. Then for season three, there was hoodies and track suits. And I believe uh, jackets and pants, if I'm not mistaken, were also available. Rotten Tomatoes season one, it has a 92%. Season two, 98%, rightly so. Season three, 79%. And I feel that. Ultimately, because a little too many uh, or a little too much of a subplots and character development, loose plot devices, no name individuals, uh, a little too much nonsensical romance, in my opinion, started to uh, lose its footing as far as a uh, TV series, its continuity. It just kind of fell off a little bit. I agree. One and two were easily the best. Three, it's still enjoyable. I'd say up until like episode four, until maybe probably eight or nine. So, okay, season three, episode one through four were decent, give or take. And then uh, the last couple episodes, probably eight or nine through uh, the last episode 12, it definitely picks up and it leaves you certainly wanting more. The middle episodes of the season, I was like, okay, this is just whatever, but I wanted to get through it so I can, you know, certainly talk about it and just enjoy it, you know. Uh, Also, as of December 2021, there was a uh, missing Christmas mustache four-minute claymation special on Apple TV. That being said, I I wish – I wonder if it's still on Apple TV. I might have to take a look and see if it's still there. I would love to certainly watch it. You know, nowadays, then again, you can probably always check YouTube. It might be there as well. But uh, there you have it. I watched all of Ted Lasso. Uh, It's been out for, you know, the last three years. Uh, The last episode came out, I don't know, probably give or take like a month ago. I've just – I've been kind of sitting on the last couple episodes because I was like, dude, it's kind of falling off. I'm glad I finally finished it and watched it. It is definitely 
worth your time, whether you're a soccer fan or not. For instance, I mean, I'm not even a football fan, but like the league, the Nick Kroll uh, comedy show that was on uh, FX years ago, I was like, dude, this is just great writing. It was just hilarious. So there you have it. There's Ted Lasso. Moving on to the next thing. All right. I admit I'm kind of throwing you guys for a loop with the uh, Sega Pico. Some of you guys are like, what the hell is a Sega Pico? I'm about to tell you. It is an obscure edutainment, education, entertainment uh, toy video game console device by Sega. Yes. Uh, The demographic at the time for this particular uh, device was uh, for kids between three and seven. Released June 3rd, 1993 in Japan and then in November in North America in 1994. There were licensed franchises on the console as well, including Sonic. And overall, 3.4 million uh, Sega Picos sold and 11.2 million game cartridges sold. Uh, We'll get more into the franchises a little later. I have a little, uh, I guess, synopsis, if you will, or a little uh, additive uh, in regards to what games were popular that I decided to mention. Uh, Surprisingly, powered by the same uh, hardware as the Sega Genesis, shaped to be similar to laptops at the time in the early to mid-90s. A stylus called the Magic Pen uh, comes with the Sega Pico and a pad to draw on. It's controlling games either by the pen or, uh, excuse me, you use the pen similar to like how you would use a mouse or by pressing the directional pads, aka a D-pad, on the uh, console itself. The uh, Pico does not include a screen, but instead must be connected to a monitor through composite video output. So therefore, at the time, obviously all we had was, uh, what, just your typical CRT cathode ray on tube uh, TV in the early to mid nineties. And I remember watching and playing that with my buddy across the street, which I will get into momentarily. The uh, cartridges were called Storyware, looking like picture books at the time. It featured other popular franchises like Lion King, uh, A Year at Pooh Corner, and uh, Tales and the Music Maker. Yes, Pooh is in Winnie the Pooh, not as in like, oh, look, there's Pooh on the fucking corner over there. Maybe I should clean it up. No. That was a dumb joke, but eh, I mean, it made me laugh nonetheless on the inside, right? <laughs> the concept of the education console was possible due to the company's past uh, work on the SG-1000, a Sega console, uh, prior to the Sega Master System and drawing tablets. The uh, sensor in the pad developed from the 1987 arcade game called World Dur- uh, Derby, which I believe uh, featured um, horse racing, if I'm not mistaken. The uh, CPU and graphics came from the Sega Genesis, as forementioned, as I mentioned just a moment ago. The console uh, advertised at a marketable $160 at launch, and then eventually went down to $139 uh, within, I believe, a year, if I'm not mistaken. The cartridges were $39 to $49 alone at the time. That's crazy for an edutainment console. Uh, the slogan was the computer that thinks it's a toy. Uh, that's a little dumb, but sure, why not? I'll I'll just roll with it. Uh, after a lack of sales, it was discontinued in 1998. So just a few years later, and in 95, Sega reported 400,000 units sold alone in North America, and 2000 claimed that 2.5 million units were sold. Then in 2005, five years later, 3.4 million consoles and then uh, 11.2 million uh, cartridges sold worldwide estimated quote-unquote even former sega of america vice president of the product development was so passionate for the product that he named his own dog pico not necessarily sega pico but just you know pico whatever there is an unknown amount in completion of how many games actually released but over 300 are known uh including 
the Berenstein Bears. Echo Jr. from the uh, classic Sega Genesis franchise about the dolphin uh, called Echo Jr. Ocean Treasure Hunt, Magic School Bus, Sesame Street, and Mickey's Blast into the Past, to name a few. A majority of the games that I saw on Wikipedia were actually Japan and Europe. I, I feel like Sega was much larger even then, whether it be Genesis, Saturn, Dreamcast, uh, SG-1000, Sega Master System, it just – it had its fan base in the States but not nearly elsewhere in the world. I, I feel like that's kind of a general consensus. But uh, as I stated uh, a couple minutes ago, I recall playing across the street with my neighbor uh, Nick McElvain, a different Nick than the other, men- or, uh, other mentionable Nick that I have mentioned in previous episodes that I typically mention, yes. I'm kind of just repeating myself here, going in a circle, excuse me. Uh, I played some sort of colored like water balloon throwing game, I vaguely recall, but I also remember, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, he definitely had some uh, SNES uh, Super Nintendo games that were, well, not necessarily rare, but I mean, something that I would like to have in the collection. Now, I remember, I think he had like Soul Blazer and maybe even the first Act Razor, but I definitely remember him having Final Fantasy 3, aka 6 on Super Nintendo, and I remember looking at the cartridge like, what is this? It's a relic. I must have it, you know, but I mean, it's not, <laughs> not necessarily like, oh my gosh, like a grail, like Little Samson or like Holy Diver or along those lines or, uh, you know, Panzer Dragoon Saga or something for Sega Saturn, but I mean, at the time, you know, I mean, it's just, I, I had a really good childhood for the for the most part uh, growing up with a lot of these neighbor kids who had these consoles and games, you know, and so forth. So uh, I'm fortunate for that. On that note, moving on, I'm going to talk to you guys about a throw-in classic candy snack as well. So why not? Called the Chico Stick, produced by Atkinson Candy Company, been manufactured since the 1950s. It is, is featured with peanut butter, uh, <laughs> cane sugar, corn syrup, coconut, and vanilla flavoring. No preservatives added, which is actually pretty cool, I I think. There is a uh, sugar-free version with Splenda added instead. Currently provided as – or excuse me, not provided. Well, fuck. Produced as a naturally colored stick of varying length and thickness with ground coconut. Interior is honeycombed with peanut butter. When fresh, it is actually considered dry and brittle. And then obviously when it's open and uh, you know exposed to air, it becomes chewy if left out for a period of time. Formerly uh, bright orange, but by artificial red and blue coloring in 2019, Atkinson announced that the recipe would be simplified to utilize vegetable juice and turmeric, giving it that natural orange hue, I guess. Turmeric, you know, usually being much more popular in like a curry, for example, at least Indian curry. For the light brown color to replace artificial preservatives with a healthier alternative, which makes sense because turmeric is much uh, better for you and it's better for your joints and so forth. And uh, I believe circulation, if I'm not concerned, if I'm not uh, mistaken, excuse me. They are kosher, gluten-free, and vegan-friendly. The original wrapper and design uh, featured actually initially a cartoon chicken wearing a cowboy hat and a badge in the shape of the Atkinson logo. Chicken is absent from uh, much more recent wrappers, and the candy company's sales uh, just came up with the name on the spot, and they were like, you know what? Let's just stick with it. Let's go with it. I found that kind of interesting. They're like, there's uh, there's no chicken in this. There's peanut butter, coconut, and it's flaky, and it looks like a giant stick. Mm, Chicken. Yeah, that's pretty much how I kind of (laughs) viewed it. Whatever. 
<laughs> the company once said in a correspondence that they felt that the candy resembled uh, fried chicken, contributing to the name, apparently. Uh, yeah, because I've definitely seen fried chicken in a stick. I, yeah, because I go to KFC uh, churches, uh, Chick-fil-A, Popeyes, whatever, and I'm like, you know what? I want I want a stick-looking chicken. Yeah, uh, whatever. I mean, I, I'm not knocking. I'm just having fun with this. but Because I, I, personally, I love Chico sticks, you know, so I'm – anyway – my old man used to buy them for me consistently at the liquor store, uh, probably about a mile or two down the road from where we used to live in L.A., and still messages me occasionally, my uh, dad. <laughs> he says, hey, check this out. It's made from real chicken parts. Yeah, thanks, Dad. Dumb, but it's it's still funny. It means a lot to me. You know, just these movies, these TV shows, the uh, Sega Pico and this candy. I just decided to throw that in there. I haven't done this in a while. So uh, at least in in regard to just being strictly just uh, whether it be movies or TV, I was like, you know, I'm going to throw an old, obscure edutainment console and some candy. Why not? I just decided to have some fun with this episode. So uh, there it is. As always, thank you for the love and support, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you. Good night.